What is it with those state house legislators in Columbus and their desperate need for more tax cuts? One of the things we'll be talking about on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with our chief political correspondent, Seth Richardson, as well as, as, well as our colleagues, Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon. It's Wednesday already. Short week. Happy Wednesday. Yay. Happy, Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. Two days from Friday. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's you know, you have the Monday off and then you get to the weekend quickly. It's a great way to start summer. Let's start. What are Ohio's Republican state senators thinking in creating a budget that threatens to derail billions of stimulus dollars that are supposed to come to Ohio? Jane Coon, I am just befuddled by the repeated insistence of the statehouse legislators to crowbar tax cuts into the budget when nobody's asking for them and state departments are so lean they're breaking down, like the health department and unemployment. But this one actually does threaten to cost us billions of dollars. What's behind this? Chris, you just don't get it here. We're putting money back in the pockets of Ohio citizens. Um, <laughs> but you're right. Ohio Republican lawmakers just can't get enough of tax cuts. They they can't seem to draft a budget without them. So when the Senate leaders unveiled their version of the state budget on Tuesday, they included this 5% income tax cut that's going to cost the state $874 million. So that's more than the $380 million in income tax cuts that the House proposed. So it's going to cost, you know, more than more than double there. But um, it's also, as you said, it's going to set up a showdown with the Biden administration because the stimulus package, as you said, is sending mucho dollars to the state, but they're not supposed to use that for tax cuts. And we already have Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost, who's who's also a Republican, like the majority of the legislature. He's already sued over the American Rescue Plan rules that that prohibit the, you know, the money from being used for tax cuts. But, you know, the the, the argument here is they, they want to put this money back in people's pockets. It's a good line, you know, but as people like Policy Matters of Ohio, for example, point out, you know, it doesn't really give that much money to people, especially at the, the low end of the income scale. I mean, people who make below a certain amount don't even get taxed in the first place, so it's not going to affect them. And you know, you might recall Rich Exner figured this out the, the when the House proposed the cuts that they'd be like enough for maybe a nice one nice dinner out or something. So even though they've increased them, I, I doubt that it's going to be a significant chunk of change for, for people, for lower income people or even maybe the average uh, taxpayers. But, but, so so think about, though, if you didn't do that and you put that 800 plus million into updating the unemployment department computers, which have, are, are decades old now or almost two decades old. And we saw in the pandemic completely broken down. It, it just doesn't make sense. Let's give people an extra dinner or let's make sure we can serve people. You know, as for the Yost thing, the court precedents were pretty clear that the federal government has the ability to do what it's doing. So if they do this, it could cost us, what is it, $3.6 billion that the state was getting with from the, the stimulus? It's really stupid. And it's just like you, you, you're going to give people a couple of extra nice dinners and risk 
one-time money that could be transformational that we were going to use to put in broadband. So it's really, really kind of dumb. Well, I'm they starting... do make the point, like the Manufacturers Association made the point that this 5% tax cut would benefit small and mid-sized employers who pay their taxes on business income through the the owner's individual income taxes. So that, that that's critical to maintaining competitiveness of manufacturing, et cetera. But, you know, I mean, as you said, aside from the legal wrangling and the differences of opinion on the value of these tax cuts, the loss of revenue, as you said, is means that they've got to cut somewhere else. So they did that, including just deep sixing a major expansion of broadband that was supposed to serve rural and underserved areas. You know, Mike DeWine had asked the General Assembly for like $250 million for that. And Senate President Matt Huffman just made, was really dismissive about it. He's like, I think it's a bad idea to just start spending without a plan. He didn't think they planned it out enough. But that's just one example of something that they just got rid of, you know. I, I actually, I think that there is a motive for why they keep cutting the taxes. I think they are trying to starve the state government of needed upgrades to deprive certain people of services. I think that the Republicans in the legislature are probably glad that the unemployment system failed so badly because why should we be helping unemployed people? Uh, I, I just, it's just doesn't make or like sense. the public health system. How many times have we written about all the deficiencies that, that they faced gathering data and, you know, their antiquated computer right. system and all the problems, you know, that this pandemic just brought into clear view. Instead of taking that money and putting it into that, they're saying we're going to give it back to audience. I guess one of the biggest disappointments in this is that Matt Dolan is a leader of it. I mean, here's a guy that we've talked about could be an interesting candidate for Senate because he would stand apart from all the, the Trump sycophants. But he's the leader of this, this, this yeah, nonsense the finance committee. Uh, yeah. And he's, the, he, you know, pushing the tax cuts and our tax cut is bigger than the house. It's just, this is childish nonsense. So you do have to question the motive. And I, I do think what, what is rising is the motive is they're trying to stick it to people. They're trying to stick it to the unemployed. They're trying to stick it to the health department because they didn't like how it, how it tried to handle the pandemic. And by starving them of necessary dollars, it cripples their ability to serve. Let's hope that this thing goes through some changes before it. Uh, yeah, there's a whole funding. school funding element to this, too, which we didn't even go into, which we don't have to. But, you know, they they changed that as well. You know. Um, yeah. I, and you uh, could see there's a logic in that. The House version would have raised it to what, 7000 per student per year over years. But it would have committed future legislatures to spending they didn't. Vote right. On. So and this so, one doesn't commit them to that. And it provides a little over six thousand per student with more for special ed and English language learners. And so, um, they, you know, they claim their plan is more sustainable in that regard, although it's overall less than the House, um, although initially it's a bigger boost. Yeah, and we'll have to see how they reconcile it. But uh, it was a disappointment to see the obsession with the tax cut once again, especially if it costs us the billions of dollars in stimulus, which I, I Dave Yost aside, it very well could. It's they're, they're crazy flirting with that because of what that money can be used for. You're listening to This Week in this CLE. What's different today compared to yesterday with the lifting of nearly all the coronavirus restrictions that have been in place? Laura Johnston, we've lived with some form of restriction 
for what, 15, 16 months now, but we got up this morning to pretty much no more restrictions. How is today different than yesterday? Uh, don't you feel the freedom in the air? I mean, it's it's totally different. I, I went swimming at our rec center pool and all the lockers are open and the showers are open. And, um, you know, people who are not vaccinated are still supposed to wear masks, but you can just feel this opening up all over the place. My church removed all the ribbons blocking off the pews. It had to been that one out of every three was open. They put the water back in the holy fonts. Um, I had joked that a good name for a pandemic memoir, if you were like religious, would be hand sanitizer instead of holy water. But um, I think the sanitizer is still there. Our, in our little league, volunteers are now cooking burgers and hot dogs since there's no more space restrictions in the kitchens. And um, everything can be at full capacity. You can stand up at a bar. You don't have to be seated six feet from somebody else. Yeah, I mean, it is it'll be interesting to see how fast things do return to normal. Will people go into restaurants where the tables are all back to their normal spacing, like at a barrio where everybody's crammed in closely? Or will people still favor outside and and just try and keep the uh, the healthy air? But it is nice to to know that we are rid of all of the restrictions and that it's all come down to now it's up to you as to what you do it's kind of crazy like i mean this has been 14 months and so it became the norm right i mean i wrote a piece a little while ago about like transitioning back into society and no longer having to step on the sticker that says stand here in line and i think there it's going to be a transition for us you know it's a whole gamut how we feel about that but um i think it does feel really nice to know that it's your choice and that you're, you know, if you're vaccinated, you're safe. And um, I don't know. I'd love to hear how, how Jane and Seth feel about, about this too. Well, well, I think, you know, we, we should stress that, that, that businesses and so forth still have a choice and True. they might be, you know, they might be providing social distance still or partitions or whatever. So um I guess it's nice that they have that freedom. I'm I'm still feeling a little cautious, you know, but um uh we we're supposed to go to the ballpark today, but it's it's going to rain pretty badly, so I don't know what the deal is like I it's going to ruin, you know, progressive fields like oh big, you know, debut at full capacity. But. Well, but they're not the Indians aren't going back full time till um Next week, the 11th. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's when they're having the grand reopening and they'll start off. I know, but $2 it's full capacity today. Really? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Today's the day. They, but they're going to, they're having like some sort of ceremony uh, next week. Right. That's their kind of, you know, yeah, kickoff to, but, but yeah, but as of today, they, you know, full house. I uh, wonder how long it'll be the remnants of those stickers on the floor in some stores are there. I mean, yeah. you know, 15 years from now, you could see some kids saying, what's yeah. that sticker on the floor? What is that? Well, you know, one thing I kind of wonder is that, you know, over the past year, year and a half, there have been, you know, great strides in kind of making these convenience models so that people could operate while still, you know, staying in their homes. And I, I do sort of wonder if, you know, are we just going to abandon some of those convenience models and some of those things that, hey, we know are smart, like, you know, you look at the the flu cases that, uh, you know, haven't happened really, right? Because we've had, you know, I think less than 200 flu hospitalizations where we're normally in the thousands. Is that going to normalize, you know, more mask wearing, um, you know, during flu season and stuff like that? It's, I, I do wonder, like, what, what are the lessons from this, you know, uh, six, eight, 
eight months from now, a year, whatever, like, do, do we keep some of those measures of convenience and some of those measures of safety? That's, that's one of the things I wonder. I, I also learned during this time, like how easy it really is to survive without having to, uh, you know, go out to restaurants and whatnot. I, I don't know that I'm necessarily aching to go back to crowded restaurants myself, not for any health reasons, just cause you know, I learned I didn't I- I don't know. I'm done with masks. And I already got sick right after the pandemic. So forget that. I don't have to avoid getting the common cold because it took me out. I'm uh, I'm, I'm not all that stuff for me. I'm glad it's over uh, as much as it is. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What did we learn from a question and answer session with Nina Turner in the first of several candidate profiles that Seth is publishing in the battle to represent Ohio's 11th congressional district in Congress? Seth Richardson, that is our chief political writer. Seth, what did you learn? What did you find from your question and answer with Nina Turner? And you've also published one with challenger Chantel Brown. We should talk about that as well. Yeah, we'll have, uh, you know, six of these coming out. Uh, obviously, two of them are already out, but wanted to talk to the the candidates who have been out there campaigning the most, because one of the things that I found while I was doing coverage is you can go to these forums and you can watch these forums. But anytime you start getting more than really three people on stage, but even more than two people on stage, um, the answers just get so diluted that you don't really you know. It's all kind of quick. 30 second sound bites. You, you ask someone what they're going to do about healthcare in America. And they've got, you know, basically the length of time for a commercial to answer it. That doesn't really uh, behoove anybody. So, uh, you know, I, I did learn a lot from, uh, from really all of these interviews. And I think, you know, aside from the, you know, I covered a lot of policy topics in here, but one of the more illuminating things, and we sort of talked about this offline is, Uh, looking at how people answered the questions and seeing who was kind of prepared for some of the curveballs that I might have thrown or, um, you know, who, who kind of thought on their feet and how they thought on their feet. Uh, That was some of the more illuminating stuff to me. And how do you compare the Nina Turner to the Chantel Brown? I I felt like just in, in looking at them, that Nina's was far more substantive, that, that Chantel's answers were much more shallow. Uh, there certainly did seem to be more, um, you know, canned answers, so to speak, in some of Chantel's answers, um, which which isn't totally surprising, right? But um, I could I could definitely tell um, who was able to sort of go off script a little better than the other. Um, I, I do think Nina probably outperformed Chantel in that regard a little bit. One of the more surprising things to me, and I guess it shouldn't be surprising, but I was hoping to get this out of some of the candidates, is because. You know, uh, Marsha Fudge is still such a presence here, right? And it's her seat, and she was, you know, really beloved by the district. But I wanted to ask everybody, you know, what they thought, you know, her greatest success and her greatest failure was. You know, everybody pretty much by and large had an answer for the greatest success, but nobody wanted to touch what they viewed (laughs) as a failure. Nobody at all. Um, The other question that I really enjoyed asking the candidates was, uh, what their greatest weakness was. Cause you know, every candidate wants to talk about their strengths. I can win because of this. I can win because of this, yada, yada. But uh, nobody ever talks about their weaknesses. So it, it, it's, it, it is interesting to hear kind of where they think their weak spots are. And one of the more interesting things uh, when you look at the Chantel and the Nina Turner interview is Nina didn't spend any time attacking any other candidates overtly or covertly, however you want to look at it. If you look at, and it's not just Chantel Brown's interview, there are, there's going to be some others that come out where you do see some of those lines and whatnot. Um, 
where people kind of have knives out, right? And I guess that is sort of a uh, function of running from behind. Right. I mean, I think that's the clear sign that this is a runaway. This has felt like a runaway since day one that Nina Turner was going to win this big. Um, and I know we don't do stories on when the candidates do their own polls, but she did do one that shows it is a runaway, that she is slaughtering everybody. So I'm not surprised that she isn't criticizing the others because she doesn't need to. She has a platform to stand on. She has a history that is rich with legislative work. She's done stuff and she's just a force of nature, whereas the rest of these folks don't have that. And I, I mean, I think this was over from day one. We'll have to see how it goes, uh, but it's not. So I love your knives out analogy because that's the only way they can try and get ahead is to try and take her down. But good luck with that. It's this week in the CLE. Why are some Ohio Democrats in Congress all a flutter to stop the awarding of a six billion dollar contract to a Wisconsin company? for replacing the Postal Service's mail delivery fleet. Jane Cahoon, I, I noticed part of the objection here is that not enough of it would be electric vehicles, but I wonder if that's actually a smart thing because <laughs> the electric vehicles do have some limitations. Well, they do. And yes, this is a major concern of Sherrod Brown, Tim Ryan, and Marcy Kepter. Uh, you know, they, they wonder how this jibes with the Biden administration's pledge to replace <clears throat> excuse me, fleets, you know, to make them all electric because this would be like only 10%. But, the, you know, the other thing is they suggested there might have been some political influence in the way this huge contract was awarded. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so they've asked President Biden to delay this 10-year contract with Oshkosh Defense uh, until it can be reviewed to just to make sure nothing inappropriate or there was no, you know, inappropriate political influence exerted. So what this is about is it's for 165,000 or up to 165,000, what they call next generation delivery vehicles for the Postal Service. So, you know, those, the old, the current fleet has like more than 230,000 vehicles and that, you know, they, a lot of them deliver mail six and often seven days a week. They, a lot of them have been in service for 30 years and they've got you know, bad heating and air conditioning and no airbags. They get like 10 miles uh, per gallon. So this is what the contract um, is all about. But um, the, if you recall, the postmaster general is Louis DeJoy and he was named under Trump. So the Democrats do not like him at all. Just think back to when we had the election and the mail-in ballots and all the slowdowns at the postal service they put at his feet. Um, and uh, but but the but the other, as I said, intriguing part of this is that they there was some sort of big um, fifty four million dollar stock trade made the day before DeJoy announced this contract award. And the parties who engaged in that haven't been revealed. So it's kind of mysterious. But but, um, you know, they Tim Ryan is particularly concerned. Uh, concerned about this because his district includes Lordstown Motors, the electric uh, vehicle company, which is part owned by Workhorse, which which would have gotten extra business if Workhorse got this contract. So, but anyway, they're all, as you said, up in arms about this. They want it delayed. And, you know, interestingly, as far as DeJoy goes, 
I think Biden's kind of trying to ease him out of there by naming new people to the Postal Service Board of Governors, but that hasn't really happened yet. The idea that the entire fleet should be electric or emission-free does raise some questions because the technology for that isn't really there yet. I mean, you know, there have been a lot of stories done in the past week about the Ford F-150 electric vehicle, which Ford has made a big announcement about. It gets 300 miles. But when you load that thing down, it might not even get 100 miles. And and going short distances isn't gonna isn't going to suffice. I mean, we've been wondering... What happens if you have an electric vehicle and you want to go to North Carolina? Do you have to stop every 300 miles or less and spend an hour getting your 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 vehicle charged? What post office vehicles are loaded heavily with stuff to deliver. So how many I mean, miles? They go into some challenging areas too. You know yeah, that might so, not be suitable for an electric uh, vehicle. So has so has anybody done a study in the postal service? about what their actual needs are before they just say, we're going to convert to all electric. I mean, it's a great, it's a great mission for the president yeah. to put out there, but before you go awarding a contract for the next 20 years, shouldn't you figure that kind of stuff out? So I hope they take a step back and look at it, but not exactly for the reasons that the Democrats for Ohio are saying, <laughs> it's, do you really want to buy a fleet of vehicles that doesn't do the job? It would be one of the classic miscues in, in history. So all right, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. The Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Michael O'Malley considered the cost in time, effort, and jury angst when he decided to seek the death penalty in the killing of an undercover police detective, especially when no one is being executed in Ohio these days. Laura Johnston, what was Mike O'Malley thinking here? It's a cop killing, so you have to go for a death penalty? I guess so. I mean, I don't know exactly how much thought he put into this. I mean, David McDaniel has no criminal history as an adult or juvenile, according to court records. As far as we know, he didn't know that the detective was a cop when at when he shot him. He was 18 at the time of the shooting. And there's a couple other juveniles charged in this. So far this year, McDaniel is the first person to be indicted on, on charges that carry a potential death sentence. But yeah, we haven't, you know, we haven't put anyone to death in the state in a while. And Mike DeWine's made it pretty clear that he's not going to be doing it while he is governor. So, yeah, you have to wonder why put everyone through that. I just it, we, we in the Anthony Sowell case, we know how much it cost. Layla Tassi added up the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars that it took to go through the death penalty phase. And then he died. Uh, of natural causes 10 years later, it was all for nothing. We, we wouldn't have had to do it at all. If he would have been sentenced to life in prison, we would have had the same outcome. He would have died 10 years later of natural causes. The 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 state can't get the drugs to kill people, right? We right. have a governor who has no interest in signing death warrants. So why why do it? And the, the thing is, I asked about the jury angst. I the, the jurors who go through death penalty cases, it tears them up inside. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a hard thing to do why put people through that when you don't have a need for it if the real outcome of this is likely to be this guy if he's guilty being imprisoned for life why not go that route save the money save the time and, and spare the jurors the trauma i think it's a really legitimate question to ask and one we should be thinking about as a society i mean cuyahoga county has long been the state's most prolific seeker of the death penalty. And there was a study that came out, I, I believe John Coniglia wrote about it earlier this year, that basically said the counties that have the most 
death penalty trials just keep doing the most. I mean, they have a population that is accepting of that. They have the money to prosecute it. And so they just keep doing it. But it'd be nice to take a step back and be like, look, are we doing the right thing here? Is this the best use of anyone's time and money? Because you're right, the the number of, it's not just the trial and the angst. It's every every trial that comes after that or every um, hearing that they have, every time they bring it back. And you know, you, you get to exhaust a lot of appeals on a death penalty case. The other thing is it's a cop killing. So that mm-hmm. has the, but the, but it was an undercover police officer. So the people who did the killing did not know that it was a police officer, which changes that dynamic a little bit. I, look, it, it's an easy thing for Michael Maui to do. I'm going for the death penalty, right? Who's going to criticize that except maybe us, but, <laughs> but, but you would think that at some point, a prosecutor somewhere would sit back and say, what's in the best interest of society here? Is it in the best interest to spend tons of tax money and put people through hell to, for an outcome that's not going to be different than if I just went through and tried to put them away for life? Yeah, part of it is they say this to get a plea deal, but that's not really an honest way of going about business either. I'll spare your life if you plead guilty and spare us the whole trial. Uh, it, it, it feels a little icky that you would you would use death as the the bargaining, bargaining chip. chip. So, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Was the bump in vaccinations we saw after Governor Mike DeWine announced his Vaximillion drawing short-lived? Don't we still have $4 million to give away? Seth Richardson will find out who the new winner is tonight, so maybe I won't be talking to one of you tomorrow. <laughs> you'll I was going to say the same things. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so the 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 really elevated uh, level of vaccinations that we saw started has definitely tapered off, but I guess it sort of depends on how you look at it, right? So, uh, you know, Evan McDonald had a story yesterday that uh, Ohio started uh, 128,000 vaccines over the previous seven-day period ending Sunday, far below the previous two periods, you know, since uh, uh, DeWine announced the Vaximillion program. Those were at 188,000 and 147,000. Um, but it is still uh, slightly up over the 118,000 that they started just before they announced this. So I, I think there was, you know, just kind of using some common sense here, I think there was always going to be a, a pretty big rush in the beginning. And then you kind of, you know, level off a little bit. The question is, are those, you know, 75, 80,000 extra vaccine vaccinations that we saw worth the $5 million that they're giving away, plus the scholarships? Probably. You know, if you think about the other things they've done to get people vaccinated, it didn't work. At least they, they got a bump. I was a little bit surprised it was a one-week bump. I thought the publicity of the two people who won last week would persuade even more people to go in and want to get a piece of that. I, I kind of thought it would be the same, too. But, I mean, even DeWine kind of admitted that, um, you know, this is supposed to get people who already planned to get the vaccine but maybe hadn't gotten around to it to go out and get it, right? So that is, seems can, to maybe have worked a little bit. Is can part I jump of it, in? Yeah, go ahead, Dan. Go ahead. Uh, I, apparently, we have heard from the governor's office since this story was published, and they, they want to push back a little bit and present us with some other data points uh, that that might – it might be a you know age breakdown or something like that 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 show maybe maybe 
there is a bump in some areas, but I, I have no idea oh. what what they're, you know, like you can make numbers say a lot of different yeah, things. Yeah, they're so playing with their abacus again. I That's, just want to put that out yeah, there, that they, they want to show us some other data points. They're going to show that, I bet, that the 12-year-olds and above were getting vaccinated in higher numbers. But let's remember, they just became eligible. Yeah. So you can't say the Vaximillion program push them in. They may have been wanting to get in all along. You can't play with the numbers. The total numbers are what we're looking at. And the bump went down. I do wonder if the fact that this week that we're counting included two days of the holiday weekend may have depressed it. I don't think most people on Memorial Day weekend are thinking, I got to go get vaccinated. I think they're thinking it's summer at last and I want to enjoy the weekend. Maybe we'll see uh, a rise again this weekend when it's not so much the holiday. That, that, that was one thing I was wondering, too, because who wants to go get a shot on your uh, long weekend when you could be out? You know, it is beautiful this weekend, too. So who wants to, you know, go spend it at a doctor's office getting a shot in your arm? I, I, I completely understand that. So, yeah, it will be, you know, with just kind of a regular seven days, so to speak, if it'll tick up a little bit. Um, I don't know. I mean, but again, like kind of the root question of all this is, you know, how better would that five million dollars have been spent you know, getting the vaccine effort now was another PSA really going to do the trick? You know, we've seen so many of those. Yeah, no, actually, I, I think I think you can call the Vaximillion an unqualified success. It got a lot of attention on the vaccine. It got a lot of people to go. It created a national model. All, all the states. Yeah, are doing every it. every state is copying West, it. Although I saw West Virginia is giving out <laughs> guns. 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 Right. What are they thinking? <laughs> get, get a shot. We'll give you a gun. It's like, I thought we were trying to save lives here. Two shots anyway. for the price of one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> all right. We'll end it there. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Laura. And thank you, the witty Jane Cahoon. <laughs> Thanks to everybody listening to this podcast. We will be back tomorrow.